Blog Talk Radio. Well, good evening. Welcome to the Word on Wednesday. I am Pastor Winfred Burns of Word Worship and Witness Ministries. That's a lot of W's in there. Just notice that. And we're in the middle of a Bible study uh, as we have systematically gone through 1 Samuel, exposing biblical principles and sharing potential applications for your life. Uh, we are in, Tonight we're in Chapter 24, and the title of the overall Bible study is Transitions to Transformation, as we watch how God took a bunch of uh, disjointed tribes, and he's forming them into a nation. And we have been on a journey that has included uh, seeing a um, the uh, priesthood, this uh, a group of priests disposed from the ministry. Uh, we have, we're watching right now as a king has is being dethroned, and another king is ascending to the throne. We're watching as the tribes are being galvanized into one unit. We've seen how God works against the enemy as he tries, as he teaches his people. We literally see the plan of God unfolding before us for that nation of Israel. And we're able to see what God is doing in our lives as he walks us through a transformation, as he walks us individually and collectively through the transformation that has taken us from being um, unsaved to saved, and not just to, to, to our salvation, but now we're moving through a period where God is is teaching us about holiness and how he's stripping some things off of us, exposing some things within us. And as he does that, he's teaching us about himself. He's revealing himself to us. He's revealing his character in us. And so we, too, are going through a transition to transformation. Uh, before we go any farther, let's uh, spend a little time with God. And you know, I don't don't spend a whole lot of time goofing off that much because we've got an hour, and it's going to take the entire hour to get through uh, the materials that we have to set you up so you can go back and begin to pray over and. And listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you through God's Word. Remember, I'm a conduit. I, I, all I do is deliver to you um, the information that God has given me and the instruction that God has given me. But this information and instruction is for the entire body. You have a relationship with God, and God wants to talk to you about you and what he wants you to do with his word. And he speaks by his spirit to you individually. You know, one of the things I stress with everyone is that you have access to God. You don't have to go through a preacher. You don't have to go through a person like myself, a teacher or anybody. You can talk to God. When Jesus died, he tore down that barrier that stood between us and God, and we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And God is calling you tonight to come to him. And so when we're done with this, this chapter, what I would encourage you to do is go back and pray over it, talk to God about it, and say, okay, God, I understand the general principles that that were taught tonight, but now let's you and I talk, and you tell me how you want to specific me to 
apply these to my life? How? What are you saying to me through your word? What are you saying to me personally? Because he's personal. He's not a general. He's personal. He's your father, and you can go to him. Amen? So let's pray. Eternal God, our Father, it's in Jesus' name that we come to say thank you, to bless you, to praise you, to give you the glory. Once again, we come to a Wednesday night in your word. And as we come to you tonight, Father, we need to hear from you. We want to hear your voice through this word. We thank you, Father, that that you have provided us with men and women all throughout the land to help us as we study your word, to help us hear from you. But now, oh God, we want to hear from you ourselves, individually and collectively. So, Father, open up our ears that we might hear. Open up our hearts that we might receive. Open up our minds that we might understand. With this knowledge, give us wisdom and understanding that we might be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Father, our prayer is that as we go through this word that you would speak to us and then empower us and then allow us to be obedient to your word that we might give you glory that you, O oh God, your glory would be manifested on this earth. And that, Father, as we walk forward, that people wouldn't see us, but they would see you working in us. That they would not even see you working in us, but that they would just see you. And that they would be overwhelmed by you. That they would be attracted to you. And that they would give your life to you. Father, because this isn't about us. It's about building your kingdom. It's about advancing your rule on the earth. So, God, we bless you and we praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the next thing I want to do very, very quickly is to remind you out there that if you don't know Jesus, that you can know him. If you want to be, if you want to have a relationship with the Father, even though there's sin and even though you think that you're unworthy and that nobody loves you, I want to let you know that God really loves you. And he cares so much for you that he gave his son to die for you. And that the penalty for your sins and the penalty for that which separates you from God has already been taken care of. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you. And now all you have to do is believe. You have to believe that he's the son of God. You have to believe that God sent him to die for you. And if you believe that, you can ask him into your life. And you can ask him in, first of all, by, by turning away from the things that you're doing right now and turning to him. Because what you've been trying to do is you've been trying to figure it out. And God has already worked it out for you. And all you have to do is trust God. And so how do you do it? First of all, you turn away from what you're doing. You turn to Jesus and depend completely on him. You, you ask him to, just in a, in a little prayer, you ask him to come into your life. You accept him as your Lord and Savior. You believe that he died for your sins. And, and I'll tell you what, he'll save you. He'll give you that gift of eternal life. So if you want to be saved, you can, there's a couple, all you have to do is pray that prayer and just ask them to come in and then begin to follow him. Find yourself a Bible-believing church. Find yourself somebody, someplace where they'll teach you more perfectly the way of salvation and then just just go for it because you got it. Amen. Now, so with that said, uh, if you if you want to talk to me about it yeah, on Periscope, all you need to do is just let me know who you are, and we'll get we'll try to get in in touch with you. Uh, if you um, if you own the Global Drive, and you don't know Jesus in the part of your sin, you can give me a call at nine two nine four seven seven two three zero four, and we can make arrangements to talk about it in depth, not quickly like I just did now but in depth so we can walk you 
down to, to, and explain salvation to you more perfectly. Amen. So let's catch up from last week. And the last, what we've learned, or let's, let's go back a few weeks. What we've learned so far is that David is in the refiner's fire. That this trial that he is now undergoing as Saul chases him from place to place is all a part of God's plan. From that we learn to understand that what we go through is permitted by God. Some of you have been going through a lot of changes. Some of you have been you know, under oppression. Some of you have been, as they say, you think that you're in the Hebrews, boys, fiery furnace all by yourself. But I guarantee you, first of all, that you're not in there by mistake. Secondly, that you're not in there alone. And we talked about the fiery trials that we go through that work patience within us and that God is just perfecting us. And that's exactly what we see here in David's life. David is not just running from Saul. David is in God's refining fire because God is preparing him to do a work for him. God is preparing him for his purpose. And God has anointed David to be king over all Israel because God said, I am looking for a man after my own heart, and he finds that man in David. And just like he found that man in David, he found that man or that woman that is out there right now listening to this Bible study. He's found him in you. When you gave your life to Christ, when you absolutely surrendered to him, God said, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody that I could use. But before God can use you in the capacity that you've been designated, he has to refine you. Before we get to the throne, before we get to our place of purpose, before we get to our permanent home in heaven, there is a trial, there is a test, and it's, it's, it's the, the test is designed to do more than prepare you for, pur- for your purpose, but it's also to take off some things that are on you that will prevent you from being what God has called you to be. And that's what David has experienced. So what's happening with David now? Well, David has been chased from the caves of Abdullam all the way to Moab, and then he gets to Moab, and, and he gets a word from, from Gad, and Gad tells him, you can't stay here, you got to get back to Judah. And so from Moab, he runs to the forest of Hereth. David is on the run because Saul has purpose in his heart that he is going to protect his kingdom from David, even though God has already told Saul through Samuel that, uh uh-uh, you've rejected my word, and I've rejected you as king. But Saul is, and, and after God's spirit departs from Saul, Saul just turns into a straight nut. And as we said early on, he's having these what we think are schizophrenic episodes where he just goes crazy. But it's more than schizophrenia because he is being tormented by an evil spirit. And when we talked about that torment early on, we said that when you disobey the word of God, you open yourself up to the devil, and the devil is not going to treat you right. He's not going to do anything good to you or for you. His purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. Do here. He's trying to take Saul to his death, and Saul is slowly but surely marching to his death because he consistently resists the word of God. He's doing his own thing. David we found out he, he stopped long enough from his run because he's compassionate toward the people of Keilah who are experiencing uh, uh, um, 
the, the Philistines coming in and stealing from them what their crops. And so he fights against the Philistines, but his reward for fighting against the Philistines was being found out by Saul. And he, so David inquires of God and asks God, hey, they're going to turn me in? And he says, yeah. He says, Samuel, Saul coming? Yeah. And so David is on the run again. And this time he hide, he runs to the desert of Zip. Now, if you could imagine the um, the, the land of Canaan, and we talked about maps last week. He is running from the western border of Judah all the way down to the eastern border of Judah to the point of almost the, Red, the Dead Sea. Just before he crosses into Moab, he is hiding in the desert of Zip. His, the, de the Zippites portray his position, so he has to run to the desert of Maon, which is closer to the Dead Sea. On, the, on one of the mountains, Saul is chasing him, and as he chases him, Saul executes what we call a pincer movement, where he literally uh, goes around two different, uh, from east to, from, uh, how, should, how do I explain this? So David's on the east side of the mountain, Saul's on the west side of the mountain, so so. He divides his troop, and he sends one group, let's see, to the north and the other group to the south. And they squeeze, they're, they're about to squeeze David in, so David can't run to either side of the mountain, force him down into the valley where they can destroy him. They almost catch him when God intervenes, and a messenger comes to Saul and says to Saul, uh, the Philistines are in the land, and they're raiding our land. you got to come back and fight for us. That was God's intervention. So what have we learned so far? While, we, while in the refining fire, Dave has, David has learned how to receive and, and obey a prophetic word. He learned that God is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. He learns that God's word is true. God gave him a word concerning his life, and God has kept this word. He, confirmed, he has confirmed this word on several different occasions, and in chapter 23, his word is confirmed again through Jonathan. Even though Saul is trying to kill him and him and him, Jonathan comes and says, my father ain't going to do nothing. He's, never gonna, he's not going to kill you. He says, and on top of that, guess what? He says, um, you're going to be king. That's the word of the Lord. And he encourages David, and then he leaves. Finally, so he's learned doing that. And he, he, he not only learns that God will confirm his word in him, but he learns of God's divine protection. Because in that previous chapter, now, one of the things that we saw was that once you are in the hands of God, the enemy can't touch you. He can growl. He can do everything he wants to do. But once you're in his hands, God does not give you over to the enemy. You might be in a trial. You might be enduring a specific trial, but you're still in the hand of God. God's got this thing under control, and he's allowing you to experience this trial so he can find, so you can find out, because he already knows. He already knows. So you can find out, number one, what he is capable of doing in you for you. He doesn't give you a, he doesn't put you in any trial. He doesn't put you to any test with the expectation that you are going to fail. Because he says he, if you can cast your cares on him and you can trust in him, he will deliver you. And that's what, that's what we're learning here. We're learning that God has given us not the spirit of fear, but he's given us the spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. And so that's what he wants us to see. That's what he wants us to experience. That's what's being displayed in David. As God reveals himself in David, David is growing. 
growing to the position, into the position of a king. Amen? So that's where we are. Let's pick up right where we left off last week, and we're going to begin our reading tonight at, um, we're going to begin our reading tonight in chapter 24. And we're going to go through this, and I'll, uh, there's a lot in this, there's a lot in this, so let me get this, let me get a sip of water, and we're going to go right for it. Chapter 24, open your Bibles up. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Jedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward. David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. So what we have here in the first part of chapter 24 is Saul choosing 3,000 of his best warriors to go and pursue David. Now remember, he's not only in David is not alone. God has assembled around David 600 men. And the description of these men we we went through before. Um, one, we found out that they were disgruntled, they owed money, they were uh, 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 being oppressed by Saul. We found that out earlier. The other thing we found out is that these were some fight. Some of these men, the ones that came up from the tribe of Gad, were some fighting men. The, the the Bible tells that it told us that one of them, the least of them, could take a hundred, and the greatest of them could take a thousand. So God has a um, David is leading a band of men who are quite capable of making war on Saul. As a matter of fact, if the description that that we were given was capable, David and three of the best of them could have wiped Saul out. But David, there's a reason why why he is running from Saul. And we're going to discuss those reasons later on in the Bible study, but the major reason is, is because he's being made. He's an innocent man. And he is being made to be the king. Because the king has to operate a certain way. As, as anointed men and women of God, there are certain things that we have to do. There are certain behaviors that God looks at. We are not judged by God the way he judges the world. The standards that we live under are not the standards of the world. We are to walk in holiness. We are to walk upright, not before the world, not according to the world's standards, but according to the standards of God, because God has designated a way in which we should walk. God has designated a, a way, the way that our character should be developed. God has legislated morality for us, a holy morality. 
God has legislated that we walk in peace and love. And so now we get into this chapter and we see that what looks like God handing Saul over into David's hands, this guy that has chased him all over Canaan, he finally has the edge on him. This guy was just just about to capture him not too long ago and had him, had not God intervened, and would have killed him had not God intervened. And now David has Saul right where he wants him. Because Saul, and what this, what this scene is, Saul has come into a cave to go to the bathroom. David has Saul literally with his pants down and his behind out. That's, that's, that's the scene. Uh, when you look at the Hebrew word, it says he's covering his feet. That, that Hebrew translation is he's covering his feet. Namely, he got, you know, he, he didn't drop them. And, he, and they didn't wear pants like we wear, but they, that robe is removed and he has put himself in a position where he can relieve himself. And that's, in the, that's as politically correct as I can get with it. And David could have snuck up on him, and David could have killed him right then and there. But instead, because Saul doesn't know they're back there, but instead he creeps up. And before he creeps up, the men tell him something. Let me read that back to you so you can, so you can hear that, because this is the crux of the matter right here. It says, his men said to him, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, first of all, we don't know where they got that from. We don't know where they have that from. There is no scriptural support for God ever telling David that. But apparently, these men surmise that, you know what, David, this is your time. God has given him over into your hand. And when that term, given him over, basically connotes that divine abandonment of a person into the power of another. So God has stepped, David, God has stepped back. And he has abandoned Saul, and he has told you to do with him whatever you want to. David doesn't kill him, but instead he creeps in, and he cuts off the corner of his robe. Now, cutting off the corner of his robe is symbolic of the kingdom literally being torn away from Saul and transferred to David because David has that corner. But so you ask yourself, why is David so upset with himself? Well, a couple of reasons why he's upset. First of all, David recognizes that he has defiled the king. Specifically, he has cut him off from the word of God. Why do you say that, preacher? Well, you have to look over in Numbers 15. Uh, let's, let's run over there real, real quick. Turn to Numbers 15. Let me show you something. This robe is an important garment. Numbers. Come on. Numbers chapter 15. In Numbers chapter 15, and look down at the 37th verse, Numbers 15, 37. Let me read to you about this rope. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lust of your own hearts and your eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commandments 
and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So what he what what Israelites were instructed to do was to put tassels on the end of their robes as a reminder of the word of God. And this word would keep them from, from prostituting themselves by going after the lust of their own heart. It was a reminder of them to obey God's word and be true and follow hard after him. And when David cuts off that, that corner of his robe, he has defiled Saul's robe by taking the very word that he needs to lead the people, not only to lead the people, but to follow God himself. And so it grieves him that he's done that. What else has he done? He has he has rebelled. He has cursed. In cutting him off, he has cursed his ruler. Exodus 22 and 28 says, Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. David has just done that. What do you mean? He didn't curse him. Well, what does curse mean? It means to bind with a spell, to hem in with obstacles, to render powerless, to resist. So what he has done, what this word means, is that he has basically him saw in by cutting him off from the very life-sustaining word that's necessary for him. And David feels guilty. And finally, in moving his hand against God's anointed, David is guilty of doing what Saul charged him with doing, and that is he has rebelled. He has rebelled. And David knows that, the, that with rebellion against leadership, there is serious consequences. Turn over to Numbers 12. As long as we're in Numbers, let's just, there's, a couple, there's a couple of places in Numbers. I'll just do the obvious one. Numbers 12. Come on, you there yet? Hurry up. We were, we, were, we were just around the corner. We were in Numbers 15, turned back maybe a page or two. Listen to this. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent. Oh, I've got to read that right. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent of, and summoned Aaron and Moses and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the forms of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy, and he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can come back. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, 
and the people did not move on till she was brought back. So David understands that there is a curse, that there is a curse associated with rebelling against the ruler of God. Exodus 23, 7 says, have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. You see, when you do something that God has not ordained, when you move out in your flesh to deal with your enemy, the person who has been against you in the wrong manner, what you literally do is you take a position of God. The Bible teaches us that God is the righteous judge. He says, the Bible teaches us to judge not that ye be not judged. God has not called us to judge and pronounce sentence and carry out the sentence on our enemy. David has the opportunity and the encouragement to do it, but he knows, according to the law, that if he does that, he will be under the curse of God. And by allowing his men to participate in such an activity, they too will come under the curse of God. And so he knows that what he has done has, has been harmful to Saul, has been, can be harmful to him, and can be harmful to his men. And in bringing together the people to advance the kingdom of God at that time, that's not the leadership that God wants. And so he is placed in this position so he can find out uh, what is in him toward Saul. And you know the beautiful thing about it? There was nothing in his heart against Saul. Even though Saul had did all that to him, what he found within him is what the word that God had placed in him, the word that he had learned as a young boy, what had been marinating in him during that time when he was out taking care of his father's sheep, that word that was active and alive in him that all young Hebrew boys learned, that word was now sustaining him and leading him and guiding him. And the question that I would have for you is when the enemy, when your enemy is placed into a, a position where you can finally get him, what will you do? Ooh, and you talking to somebody right now who... I'll tell you, I love, I love, I love, oh, I would love it to get power over my enemies. I, I, I used to, oh, I used to, oh, if you did something to me, I couldn't wait for you to turn your back, for you to turn your head, for you to get, for me to get in a position where I could get you. Because according to the, the standards of the world, it's doggy dog. Is get or get got. We don't live by those standards. We live by the standards of God. We live according to the principles, the moral principles that God places within us. David would have broken the law had he killed Saul because according to the law, thou shalt not kill. Hallelujah. So what does a Christian do with his enemy? I see my screen is froze, but I'm going to keep going anyway. What does a Christian do with his enemy? Hang on for a minute. I want to do something. Back out of this. Oh, my screen is really froze. Oh, well, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep going anyway. 
Periscope folks, you better jump over on Global Drive. If you can't, if you can't hear me, just jump on Global Drive. Jesus tells us what to do with our enemies. Matthew five forty four says. Let me close this. Matthew 5.44 says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of God your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In Proverbs 25 21 and 22, it says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. Uh oh. Hang on for just one second. Hang on. Go to, go to Proverbs 25, 21, and 22, and let me, um, let me see if I can get this right real quick. Okay, I'm back. I'm sorry. Okay, now, Proverbs 25, 21 and 22 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, we sometimes think that heaping burning coals on his head will, will burn his brains out, but that's not what that means. That's an idiom that basically says that heaping burning coals refers back to uh, the household. Households need, needed those coals to cook and stay warm. And when the fire in the house went out, you would go to your neighbor, you would get some coals, you would put them in this big urn, and then what you did was you carried the urn on your head. So literally what it's telling us to do is it's telling us to bring, give life, to give life to people. And so as Christians, when we encounter our enemies, what we are supposed to do is we are supposed to give them life. We're not supposed to kill them. We're supposed to give them life. Look at Luke 6, 20, 27 and 36. 20, uh, chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one tree, turn to, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love them who love you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So the expectations of God to us Concerning our enemies is mercy. Saul is in that, 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 that compromised position. Saul can be killed, but what God demands of his kingdom people is that we be merciful. And I know that's hard. Because they done messed with us, they done did everything they wanted to us, and God says, no, my prescription for your enemy is mercy. My prescription for your enemy is that you do to them what you would have wanted done unto you. 
Instead of you treating them like they've treated you, you are supposed to treat them like you would have wanted to be treated. Now, it goes even deeper. Go to Proverbs 24, verse 17 and 18. Do not gloat when your enemies fall, when they stumble. Do not let your heart rejoice. You know, sometimes we got this thing when we see somebody get it, that we say, ooh, I'm glad they finally got it. Well, the Bible says, do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove. And turn his wrath away from them. So while you sitting up celebrating the whooping that they getting, you turn it around and you might well put your pants in your hand because God getting ready to turn around and get your behind. No. You extend mercy. And David extends mercy. But not only does he extend mercy to Saul, but he rebukes his men and will not allow his men to put themselves in a position where they do something to Saul, even though Saul been trying to kill them and their families. They try to, you know, because you want to protect yourself. You want to protect your family. But what does God do? Instead, God says, no, we're not having that. Uh-uh, I got this. I got this. And so David, as the leader, teaches mercy. I want to know how many people... How, 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 how much better society would be if we as Christians just taught the principles of mercy to our families and our children like David is doing in his leadership. David, when the enemy falls into our hand, we are to execute mercy. Now, let's keep moving. As we we got twelve minutes, and we got I'm going to finish this chapter tonight in twelve minutes. We go back over First Samuel twenty four. Humbly in humble submission. 
you know, sometimes when we get into it with our elders or when we get into it with our pastors or, or leaders, we come in and we put our hand on our hip and we just as grown as they are. And this is not the approach that God wants us to take. When we approach people on our, uh, on our jobs, when we approach our bosses, when we approach any type of leadership, even government leadership, we show ourselves to be wrong when we don't appear as humble, submitted, acknowledging that they have that they are the anointed of God. President Obama is in his position because God placed him there. Any government official is in their positions not because they ran and won. They're there because God put them there. Your boss is in that position because God allowed it. And for us to treat them in any manner other than with respect and with dignity is for us to be out of line, for us to be out of order. We have to learn... Even when we don't like the person, even when they're as wrong as two left shoes, that we have to approach with humility. And even when we finally got them, even when we see them about to go down or they're going down, we're not to be the ones that hold the coat to throw the stones or rejoice over them. No. And when they, when, as they said, when they're in a compromised position, we have to acknowledge, hey, uh-uh, no, don't do that. This is not what God requires of us. God requires of us that we always operate in mercy and leave the judging to him. And David says a couple things here. First of all, he says, may the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But me, my hand ain't, uh-uh. No. Why does he, and look at how he ends with this proverb. He says, because from evildoers come evil deeds. So in, if we place our hand to do evil against our enemy, we're just as wrong as they are. Because we have done an evil deed, and that makes us an evildoer. And let, let it not be named among God's saints. Let me go to verse 14. Then he moves from asking the Lord to judge to really saying, as Saul, and this is what he's going to say in this next passage, Saul, you're not, even, you're, not, you're not doing your job as the king, he says. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? Again, watch this. May the Lord be our judge and, be, and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. He calls on the judgment of God. But before he calls on the judgment of God, he says to Saul, Saul, look at you. Instead of you out protecting the people, You've got your best men out here after me, and I'm a nothing and a nobody. You are squandering kingdom resources fighting me. How much, king, how much of our resources do we squander fighting one another? How many times have we seen uh, instead of our churches fighting against the pastor or the, uh, the pastor fighting against the deacons or the deacons uh, uh, doing something wrong in this matter, trying to get the upper hand, trying to get power, wasting the resources that we should be employing to advance the kingdom of God instead of us coming together, submitting one to another as the Bible requires us, and being one, we're so busy fighting each other that the devil just sitting on the sidelines watching us go to hell along with the, with, with the rest of the world because we're just, as I say, we're consuming ourselves. David says, uh-uh, you, you're supposed to be out there fighting them, not me. 
I'm going to lead this to the Lord to do. I'm not going to fight you. I ain't lifting my hand up against you. Uh, and, let the, and let the Lord avenge me by delivering me from your hand. That's his prayer right there. That's what he said. Look, 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 look. let's finish it. When David finished saying this, I'm at verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Saul was broke because he realizes something. He says, and he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he says. You have treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David, having delivered this message to Saul and having treated him with mercy and placed him in the hands of God, Saul breaks down and starts crying because he realizes now in this moment, in this lucid moment that he has, that he's wrong and that he has lost the kingdom. And that David will be the king. And that the kingdom of Israel will prosper under David. And he just asked one thing. He says, when you become the king, don't kill off my family. Because that's what other kings would have done. They'd killed them off to solidify themselves. And don't wipe out my name from my father's family. David gave his oath. David gave his word that he wouldn't do it. So as we look at this passage, I want you. I, I go back and ask you again. So how do you deal with your enemies? Look at Romans twelve, verses fourteen to twenty-one, and that's going to that'll be the final final passage that we look at. Romans twelve, verse fourteen says, "Bless those who persecute you." Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far, it depends, as, far as it depends on you, live at peace with it, everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. We've seen David in his trials. David with opportunity. Give Saul mercy, love, and life. I'll leave you on this note tonight. When your enemy is in your hands, what do you do? Say thank you to bless you and to praise you to give you glory and honor. Oh, how we love you. Oh, how we praise you. Oh, how we magnify your name. Oh, God, oh, great God of heaven, teach us how to treat our enemies. Teach us how to move in love and mercy and kindness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And as I leave you tonight, let me leave you with the, the blessing of God.
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And that's for you and your family, household, neighbors, friends, and all that you come in contact with. We bless you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next Wednesday night.